Well, good morning. Me and my stools have reached the end of the road. Uh, this is part three of, uh, part four, sorry, of, of Work, Rest, and Play. And what we've been kind of trying to do in this series is, is think a little bit about this journey of, of how we interact with what are probably three very core elements to many of our lives, work, rest, and play. And, and what I've been trying to do is keep this thread running through the whole series that makes us think a little bit about where does grace intersect with that? How do, how do we look at these three sort of things with, with grace lenses? How does it change our perception of work, rest, and play if we think in terms of, of, of what it is that God offers us with a, with a worldview that is covered by grace? I hope that you found some of that kind of connection helpful. Uh, what I'm trying to do at some level is, is help us to remember that something which appears very theological like grace, when we actually apply it in, uh, as a set of lenses, we can look at everything in, in, in a different way. We can engage with things without some of the pressure that we have in the world. Uh, I, I think in our, contemporary, in, in our contemporary society, this pressure that everything sort of connects to each other in slightly different ways that often aren't grace, but we more akin to what we might call law, the desire to achieve and, and, and become uh, and, and sort of present ourselves in a way that the Bible would call righteousness, actually, this sense of, like, look what I've achieved. And so I'm trying to think a little bit about that. While I was thinking about that, um, it's obviously Lent as well, and, and so I was just doing a little bit of a habit audit the other, the other week there, and I thought, you know, there's a couple of habits in my life that are, that are not really habits. I'd like them to be habits, but they're not quite happening as habits, and how can I kind of earth them? How can I get these habits working? Uh, and so I thought, maybe there's an app out there, because that's how we think about everything nowadays. Maybe there's an app that will help me, and it turns out there's tons and tons of habit apps out there. Uh, I particularly was, was uh, stick spelt with the lesser-known um, two Ks uh, uh, spelling. Now, here's an app, right, that will allow you to basically say, okay, what do I want to commit to? And you can drop down that box, and, and you, can, uh, you can sort of basically have a, have a check as to maybe you want to run a race, or maybe you want to quit smoking, or, or maybe there's other habits. So you can customize your own habit. Um, and, and you can pay for Stick, by the way. You pay them some sort of monthly fee, and they'll then track your habit, and they'll prompt you, hey, look, it looks like you forgot to do your habit today, so on and so forth. Sounding helpful so far. Um, but then you notice, uh, just in the bottom left corner of the screen there, it says $45 million on the line. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Uh, this app will allow you to select charities that you don't like or charities that you do like. And if you fail to achieve your habits, it will extract money from your bank account and pay it to these charities on your behalf. I decided that my desire to drink water in every morning before I do anything else wasn't worth that. <laughs> and my desire to do a few extra sit-ups probably didn't need a charity I don't like to get some of my money. But it made me think, when did work, when did it sort of get to this place that everything feels like work? When did we get to the stage that, that even something as simple as, hey, you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to just employ a few new habits in my life, now have become things that might cost me money. Maybe it's just me that feels like that, but sometimes it just feels like everything, whether it's work, whether it's rest, whether it's play, everything seems to feel like work. 
nowadays. There are even sleep trackers that will shout at you because you're still awake and shout at you because you're still asleep. And theoretically, based on some sort of noises that you make in the night, will wake you up at appropriate times to have peak maximization of your sleep. It used to be that you slept by kind of just closing your eyes and you let it happen to you, but now it's work. In John chapter 2, there is a story about Jesus, and it goes like this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, I just want to suggest just briefly that there's not a causality between the arrival of Jesus and his disciples and the running out of wine. Um, <laughs> There is actually one translation of the Greek of this, which kind of seems to look at the possibility that, that his disciples maybe weren't invited, and it was just Jesus that came, and that's how they ran out of wine. But again, that's not in the text. I just want to recover Jesus' disciples from accusations you might make over supper this evening as you talk about this sermon. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, they were really close, woman, <laughs> What concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. John's gospel is always telling the story about Jesus with kind of an eye on the future. And in John's gospel, it knows that, hey, what's coming in the future is, is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is Jesus' hour. But we're here, we're in chapter two, and, and she says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, well, what's that got to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother then goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Interesting little discipleship notion there in the story. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. Each of these water jars hold between 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He takes six jars of water that hold 20 to 30 gallons. This is 180 gallons of water. Just like, sometimes we don't do that math immediately in our head. This is 100, so this probably takes some time. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like they just turned a tap on and, you know, and now we have the water. Somebody had to go to a well. Somebody had to draw up all of this water. So they took 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. <laughs> I love that. To the brim. Were the servants suspicious about what was about to happen? I don't know. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine. So, interesting how the, I just find it interesting how this story works here. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine. You never actually, when does the miracle happen? How does this miracle happen? All that we know is that here we have six jars with around 180 gallons of water in them. Some is taken out. But by the time we're here, this is now wine. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, because <laughs> they weren't like totally stupid, um, the steward called the bridegroom, and the steward says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. And that's the end of the story. What a strange story. You know, Jesus, let's just, let's just get, uh, we're out of wine. I don't know how big uh, this wedding would be. This is in a kind of cultural context where villages are quite small. So, you know, a, a big, big village in these times would be like 50 or 60 people. Uh, but <laughs> they've run out of wine. Jesus is like, we can solve this with eight, like 800 liters uh, of wine. Will that do? Is that enough? You know, will that help? Like, you know, and so, so we take this, this, uh, this 800 liters of wine and, and we, we take some of it over to the chief steward and the chief steward says, like, okay, well, like what is this? And then him and his, uh, you know, him and the bridegroom, they have some kind of sommelier type conversation for a moment about when you're supposed to serve wine and how they're completely socially screwing up this total wedding. And then the story ends and Jesus leaves. The next, chap- the next verse is Jesus leaves, it goes somewhere else. You know, you can kind of imagine like one of the disciples kind of taking Jesus aside. Jesus, just come over here for a minute. Um, this is not how we're gonna start a movement. Like, like you're gonna, you're gonna do this like incredible, incredible miracle, and you know, I mean, if Jesus was a pastor, right? Uh, what would happen is, uh, you know, it would get basically go so there's 800, 800 liters of of uh, of wine. It would take some to the to the sommelier. The sommelier tastes it, goes, oh my goodness, the social proprieties all upside down, and then the pastor would appear and go, what has happened here today? Is God's grace has fallen upon us? Let me just point out that it was water here, and now it is wine. Who would like to come to the front and follow Jesus? But not Jesus. Jesus is gone. He disappears out the back door. Jesus, you're never gonna, you're never gonna start a movement like this. And Jesus is like, yeah, I will. Look what I can do with water. <laughs> Maybe this is exactly why Jesus starts a movement. <laughs> would work well in France. <laughs> and this is where the story ends. But John tells us actually one other thing about this, that this is Jesus' first miracle. Jesus' first miracle is 800 liters of wine. They missed this class in seminary. You know, we, we often like, tell me about Jesus' miracles, and we talk about all of these outlandish sort of stories that go on. But the first thing that Jesus does, so God himself, this, the biblical story tells us that God himself comes incarnate in flesh and moves and is amongst us as a human. And his, his authority and his power and all of this kind of works through him to the extent that the first thing that he does is provides 800 liters <laughs> of wine. A text like this was always a problem for churches in in years gone by because of course, you know, Christians are not supposed to drink. In fact, uh, some of the the, uh, church theologians from from a few um, hundred years ago really struggled with this miracle because they were like, you know, they wanted to constantly encourage people not to drink and then people are getting to chapter two of John's gospel. They're going, 800 liters, you know, uh, to which Jesus makes this 800 liters and then says, don't anybody drink it because we don't drink, we're Christians. Some, some, uh, some scholars argued that the bit that turned to wine was only the cup that was taken to, <laughs> to, to the chief bridegroom, but that kind of doesn't really work as well. I grew up in a context where my church that I grew up in was uh, what we called teetotal. Um, is that a term we use in Canada? Yeah, teetotal. What teetotal meant in my church was uh, people had drinks cabinets that didn't have glass fronts. Um, uh, <laughs> 
so, so basically, as long as, as long as the pastor wasn't there, then it was okay. But when the pastor was there, the doors were closed and nobody, nobody knew that we, we didn't drink. And, and, and I heard, literally heard people uh, suggest that one of the great miracles of this, uh, of this story was, was not that Jesus turned water into wine, but that Jesus turned water into grape juice, because of course, Jesus wouldn't make alcohol. And what was the real miracle was that the, the bridegroom and, and this sommelier, they, they thought it was wine. Because that's a real killer miracle. Like this wine is better. This wine is better than all the other wines. Like normally what happens is, is, you know, you serve the bad wine at the end and you serve the good wine at the start. When everyone's drunk, you bring out the bad wine. But this Welch's grape juice is the greatest thing I've ever tried. (laughs) But the Bible tells us that Jesus makes 800 liters of wine at a party. The first miracle that the Son of God does is 800 bottles of wine at a party, which kind of makes us want to ask the question, like, what's the point? (laughs) Like, what's going on with this? Jesus leaves. He doesn't explain it. He heads off somewhere else. Like, I think we have some thoughts in terms of how we perhaps imagine this story would go. We have some thoughts in terms of what we think would happen. But as biblical scholars, there's always a question of what's actually going on in this particular story. How do we make sense of a story like this? Is there a point to a story like this? Is there a question about water being turned into wine? And essentially, I want to ask a few questions about that this morning. I just like caveat that I'm just going to make at this point right at the very start. Some of my use of the word wine in this sermon will be metaphorical. As a result of that, what I mean to say is, when you're opening a third bottle this evening, don't blame it on me. (laughs) Maybe we expect the seriousness of God. Maybe we expect Jesus to go, well, mother, these drunks and pagans and sinners have drank all the wine. That's their fault. You know, they need water so that they can cool down later as they burn in hell. I think that's what we kind of expect sometimes. Or do we expect a lecture from Jesus? I am the water of life. I'm here to tell you about the qualities of drinking H2O over the, the, the destroying of your liver with all of this wine. Perhaps that's the Jesus that we imagine. Do we imagine the judgmental Jesus, the Jesus that says, well, it's your own fault and wait till you see what's coming? Or do we imagine the kind of logical Jesus who comes in and sort of says, actually, you'd be much better off with water. Let me just, let me just show you what happens when a person slightly dehydrated and uh, you know maybe that's what we expect of Jesus but the Jesus we get is a Jesus that says are you short of wine what about 800 liters maybe we expect a serious Jesus but we get a Jesus of play we get a Jesus of party whatever your view of Jesus is Somewhere in there, if you're going to take biblical text seriously, and that's, of course, a choice that you need to make, but as somebody who wants to take biblical text seriously and therefore use biblical text to to construct what I think Jesus is like, your view of Jesus has to somewhere in there fit in that he went to a party once, they ran out of wine, and he brought an extra 800 bottles to help get the party started. Our view of Jesus, does it allow us to have this Jesus of play, this Jesus of party? And I think this is difficult for us because in the contemporary climate, I think our notion of play has become hugely warped. Our notion of of, of how we, of, of what we do when we're not working has quite often become, well, more working. 
It seems to be that the way that we think about our free time now is that our free time has to be used well. Perhaps a question, when was the last time you wasted some time and felt okay about it? When was the last time you did nothing for an hour or two hours or perhaps even a whole day and felt okay about it? I don't mean change. You know, the great proverb my, my grandfather used to say to me, which was that change is as good as a rest. So, you know, so we would work hard all day long and we work hard all week long and we're pounding everything that we, needs to be done. And then when it comes to our day where we're not being paid, what we do is we come home and we go, okay, now it's time for the lawn and now it's time for the decorating and now it's time for the breaking of things that we previously weren't broken, but now they are broken and that'll be next week's job to fix it. There'll be all sorts of things that we now do because our rest time, our play time becomes work or perhaps, you know, your leisure that you take on is your hobby becomes work for you because you think, well, this is a great hobby. I'm really going to do it. And then somewhere one day when you're maybe climbing that wall as part of your new hobby, you decide, I'm going to be the best wall climber in the world ever. Or maybe you're a skier, or maybe you're a cyclist, or maybe you're a runner. And, and, and what happens is you're trying to get this hobby, which is supposed to be rest, but then something starts to take over, and you decide, I need to be the best at this particular thing. And all of a sudden, what happens is this thing which was supposed to be play starts to be governed by the rules of work we basically find ourselves asking, what's the productivity in what it is that we're doing? So our work has to have productivity, our play has to have productivity, and our rest has to have productivity. And if that's not the case, then we say, well, I just don't really feel like I'm using my time well. I feel like I'm wasting time. At some level, it feels like our sense of value, our sense of what the Bible would call righteousness, is being governed by whether the works that we're doing are valid. And if I'm not doing the right things, then even my rest and my play isn't good. This is affecting our kids quite badly, by the way. Um, Peter Gray in the American Journal of Play. Now that sounds like a fun journal right there, doesn't it? Peter Gray in the American Journal of Play. In an article that, that talked about the development of psychopathology in children, it says this, play helps children learn how to make decisions, solve problems, exert self-control, and follow rules, learn to regulate their emotions, make friends, and learn to get along with others as equals. Also, Peter, play is fun. <laughs> like, and maybe that's what it's supposed to be. And what happens is our view of play becomes, oh, look at all the things that you can gain by playing. So now play is valid. Now play is important. Now we can let our kids play because, hey, although it just looks like, you know, they're playing cops and robbers, uh, you know, in the backyard. Now we can say, oh, look at all the great decision making that Cody is now developing as a result of uh, pounding on Brad's head. Uh, the... You know, uh, at least now he's, he's going to have some chance to exert some self-control, and, and when I shout at him, he'll follow some rules. And what happens is we start to think about this in our parenting, where we say, well, unless there's purpose to it, unless there's profit from it, unless there's achievement from it, this play isn't valid. And so what happens is we think about all of our play alongside profit. And I just want to ask a question, I suppose, for us and I'm not just talking about children, but what do you think that might do to us? 
What do you think it might do to us as people if the only valid space for play is if it attaches itself to profit? Can play stand on its own? I, uh, I use uh, an app called Strava. Strava is one of the world's leading and biggest social networks for uh, people who run. And uh, they, they ran a huge survey just recently trying to get to the bottom of a variety of things of, uh, about the people that use their app. And they wanted to learn something about runners. Uh, one of the questions they asked was, why do runners start running? And then they asked the same question to uh, runners to say, why do you keep running? And, and, and the same sort of results came out. That This is the sort of thing people answered when asked, why do you run? Uh, to prevent illness or disease, to be healthier, to manage anxiety or depression, to process life changes, to get stronger, to improve my body image. This really helped me understand why runners are not really great friends. Um, <laughs> but it fascinated me, and perhaps you see it as you, as you look at this here, in all of these categories that are shown to us as why do runners run? Do you notice that nobody answered because I like it? Nobody answered because it's fun. <laughs> Some of you are going, yes, that's because it's not. Um, <laughs> no, nobody answered the reason why I run is just because. And maybe I was being a little hopeful that we'd get the sort of Eric Little line, well, because when I run, I feel his pleasure. But I feel like that was probably no chariots of fire fans in the room. That's obviously just a, just a, just a movie for Scots people. But anyway... Um, Everybody had to have a reason. The reason to lace on your shoes has to have purpose. And if it doesn't have this profit, if it doesn't have this purpose, then what is the point? So we end up finding ourselves in, in, in what you might call conditionality, where, where, where the if statement is, if, if I am going to do this, then there has to be some sort of benefit to it. If I'm going to run, then it has to improve my mental health. Or if I'm going to run, then it has to help with my body image. Or if I'm going to run, then it has to help me meet people. If Johnny is going to play with his friends, it has to help him at school. If Jackie is going to learn piano, that has to improve her grades. There's always an if-then conditionality. And of course, what happens is that starts to shape the way that we see everything. One of the big problems, I think, is Christians that we struggle with, and I'm suspicious that most Christians don't really believe uh, the truth about this, but most of us, our view of God involves a God who says, if-then, if you believe in me, then I will love you. If you would confess me, then I will save you. If you would do X or Y or whatever, then I'll do the other thing. And all of this actually isn't how God works. Karl Barth, the great German theologian, used to say that when you start to think about God in terms of conditionality, you actually end up doing the devil's work. Because the devil works in if and thens. The devil works in the context of, well, if you do this, then that. If this is the case, then that. What we find with God is it works the other way around. The great verse of Romans, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. There's no if and then with God, because it all comes before us. Now, this is quite fascinating, perhaps, for us, because maybe, just maybe, there's something rooted in the God of the gospel that can allow us to play, because we don't have to live in this conditionality. 
If the conditionality says the only way that I can have leisure time is if it's got benefits for the rest of my life, then it ceases to really become leisure time. It starts to become just part of your productivity. So maybe what we find with God is that rest and play only really come alive when we lean into his radical grace. God's radical grace that, that does things that we would never dream of doing ourselves, that, that wipes out conditionality, and instead what we find is the whole thing seems to work the other way around with God. He loves us before we loved him. He saved us before we even knew about it. He rescued us before we were even born while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. One of those profound verses of the gospel that calls us not simply to think about salvation as something that maybe is done in ahead of us, but this profound verse that maybe changes how we live. That maybe your whole life doesn't get, need to be governed through a paradigm that says the prophet has to be with everything. Maybe grace says, hey, you can just play. Maybe you can take a day off every now and again. Because in, in different contexts, you might teach a different sermon and say, hey, come on, people, we need to do a little bit of work because, you know, we're, we're not doing anything here. But I feel like in the Western context, our problem isn't that we're not doing enough work. Our problem is that everything has become work for us. And where do we breathe out and just enjoy the life that God has given us? In a brilliant uh, book on this particular subject. A Nigerian uh, scholar, Nimi Wariboko, says this, play is not conceptualized as a counterpoint to work. He's talking about how we see play as Christians. So play is not conceptualized as a counterpoint to work, the problem of leisure or seriousness. And this is what we tend to do is we go, okay, here's work, and because of work, then we need some playtime because that playtime will help us. Well, think of it this way. Have you ever said, I really need a day off today so that I can get my head into Monday morning? Right? Immediately, you're starting to profitize your rest time. But play is not conceptualized as a counterpoint to work, the problem of leisure or seriousness. Although these are not denied. Wari Boko says these things, that, that's part of what goes on. But, but this, and I love this, but as a deactivation of law and a radicalization of saving grace. So what play does do is, is, hey, you know that pressure that you find yourself on to always produce, to always achieve, to set a standard, to reach the bar? Well, the Bible calls that quest for righteousness. Play comes along and says, hey, what if you just turned all of that off? What if you just switched it off and deactivated it and lived in radical saving grace that says you have value and purpose and your life matters and who you are is important, not because of all of that sort of stuff, but because God made you. This is how the Bible theologizes our being. Play, says Oriboku, is conceptualized as purposelessness. Now, if you're a proper proper Canadian, right? Or if you're like a proper American or, or a proper European, I'm just still a European, just, okay? The man with the floppy hair is doing his worst, but. <laughs> like as a European, that phrase terrifies me, purposelessness. Like, like can I really live in a moment of purposelessness? Can I really take a day off 
Can I really just find myself somewhere where I'm not trying to find what is this doing for the rest of my life? How is this benefiting me? How is this bringing purpose or profit or, or anything like this? Can I actually find myself on a Saturday morning or a Monday afternoon or a Sunday evening? Can I find myself with some space? And can I turn to the people that I love and say, let's do this just because? Not because, it's, not because it's going to help us tomorrow, not because it's going to help us focus, not because it's going to make us better, not because I'm going to breathe easier. Just because I'm alive, God made us alive. He put us in this incredible world, and he kind of just wants us to love it. Can I really live with purposelessness? The psalmist asks this question in Psalm 127, verse 2. He says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go to lay to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. The psalmist is like, you can work as hard as you want. You can, you can punch it all. You can make it all work. You can, you can get up super early. You can get to bed super late. You can live in all of that anxiety. But hey, rest, <laughs> that's a gift of God. That just comes from you. You can't earn that. You can't achieve that. It's something that God has given us. The ability for us to rest. You might even suggest that there's levels of that which is what make humans profoundly unique. That we actually have space to rest. We can construct lives in such a way that we can rest. So Psalm 127, to me, sort of comes as some sort of clash of cultures. But it's in the culture of our world of productivity where we constantly justify our rest as a result of all the work. Now, the psalmist isn't saying don't work. Hopefully the first three parts of our series have clarified some of that, all right? But, but the psalmist is saying, listen, all of that work that you do, even as you mount it all up and you get up early and you stay up late and you anxiously toil at everything you're doing, when the rest comes, that's still a gift from God. Of course, that word gift is where we get the word grace from. So, rest, leisure, play are gifts. At some level, I almost find myself then wanting to ask the question, you can earn the water or you can receive wine. <laughs> the fascinating thing about the bridegroom and the sommelier in our story is they don't know where the wine came from. <laughs> and as far as the story tells us, they never find out. You know, and can you imagine the meeting afterwards? You know, like this wine is amazing. Like normally what happens is, you know, you bring along the good wine, you wait till everyone's drunk, and then you serve up the bad wine. Well, yeah, well, that's what I thought we were doing. So like, what do you think, what do you think's happened? Let's call in the servants. Okay, hey, where did all this really good wine come from? How come you didn't serve that first? Well, a guy came <laughs> and he filled up water jugs and we served water and you said it was the best wine. <laughs> Okay, so now we know where some of the wine went because the servants clearly stole it. They're drunk, and, <laughs> and, and that's why we've ended up where we've ended up now. We can earn all we want in life, but how's that affecting your leisure time? Have you been able to find space in your life where you can just receive the gift of rest, the gift of leisure? See, because grace frees us from the need to always produce. Interestingly, if you actually look at the nature and the description of what a life would be that always had to produce, you realize you find yourself in what you would call slavery. The Israelites, when they were in slavery in Egypt, 
they found themselves in a place where they were working, working, working. The only value of an Israelite life in Egypt was what does this life produce? If it produces nothing, the slave is not worth anything. As long as the human slave, not just in Egypt, but in all of the history of slavery, as long as the human produces, they have value. So it's fascinating to think that one of the first things that God does when he rescues these Israelites out of Egypt, he takes them from slavery, they cross through a Red Sea, he brings them to a desert, and then one of the first things he says to them is, oh, hey, by the way, one of the rules of now being a free group of people is you have to take a day off every week. In fact, God kind of ramps it up a little bit because he kind of, I think God gets that humans are not going to be good at that, right? So, so, so basically God says, okay, you're going to have to take a day off. If you don't take a day off, um, somebody should kill you. Which we read now, go, oh my goodness, this is like this horrendous God. I want nothing to do with God. I'm out of here. But maybe God's profoundly seeing something that, oh, hey, by the way, if you don't take a day off, you know what? You're going to end up killing yourself. You're going to end up ending your own life. And maybe you'll be alive and breathing, uh, but you're not really going to be living. So rooted into the first thing that God does with this group of slaves that he rescues from Egypt, he says, is take a day off. Because this tells us something. If you can take a day off, it means you have believed one of the profound truths of the Bible, that you are valuable just because you are. You're valuable just because you're breathing. You have value to God. You have designed place in his creation. You're important. You're worth something. How, do you, how can you know that from a day off? Because you achieve nothing and you're still here and loved. And so often what happens is we can't take a day off because we think the world revolves around us. This is actually important for why we do some of the things we do in Lent. Because one of the lessons we as humans have got to learn is you can take a day off and guess what? The world will still be there tomorrow. Shockingly, what you'll discover is if you don't answer your phone for a whole day, less disaster has happened than you expected. If you don't log into the office Wi-Fi for 24 hours, what you will find is it's unlikely your company went bankrupt. <laughs> but somehow we start to live and tell ourselves a lie that I'm so important that I've got to make this happen. But actually, it's a culture of slavery. And we become enslaved to the notion that we always have to produce. And God offers a group of slaves Sabbath. David Zal says, Sabbath represents resistance to the dominating paradigm of more, more, more. An invitation to the experience of grace. Because play is about grace. And you can live in more, more, and more. But what happens if you start trying to live over here in more and more and more, you start to think that that's where your value is found, that only when you live in more are you worth anything? The beautiful truth of, of, of this Jewish notion of Sabbath is that you can take a day off. You can play. You can rest. The world will still turn. But perhaps more importantly, you still are worth exactly the same to God as on all the other days. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Funny things happen on third days in the Bible. And on the third day, there was a wedding. 
On the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. Why is it that John wants us to connect the resurrection of Jesus with this moment of play? Why does God, God think about Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day? And yet when the gospel writers come to tell this story, they say, hey, if we're going to connect some to the third day, let's connect a party where Jesus brought in 800 liters of wine. See, the resurrection tells us something about God's view of us all. If humans weren't valuable, would Jesus be raised from the dead? If humans didn't intrinsically have worth, would God raise Jesus from the dead? The empty tomb in Jerusalem three days after the crucifixion tells us that what we do with our bodies matters, but what we do with our bodies isn't where our worth comes. They are just intrinsically worthwhile. Why? Because God made them. And so deeply rooted into the resurrection story is a story about your wealth. The resurrection story isn't a story just to go, oh, look, a happy ending, everything's great. The resurrection tells us that what happens in this world matters to God, but it has intrinsic value. And on the third day, <laughs> Jesus has a party because maybe God just wants us to live in that level of his love and value towards us. So maybe I just want to say this at the end of our series. We as Jesus followers, the invitation is to always live in the third day. To be a resurrection people means that surely we have something about the way we go about our lives, whether it's in work or rest or play. We go about our lives in a particular way that speaks to a sense of where our value comes from, where our core worth comes from, isn't from these things. The reason that Christians can live in our city, the reason that Christians can live in our workplaces, that can, that can breathe out in our decks, on our decks in the summertime, the reason that you find Christians should perhaps be the best skiers and host the best parties and have the most fun is because we've been released from this desire that's so common in all of us that all of my value comes from what I do. And instead, we approach what we do differently. Because the story in the Bible of work, rest, and play says all of that's what we do, but it's not where your value comes from. So let me pray this over you at the end of our series. May you find in Jesus a grace that is so radical that that's where you realize your worth comes from. And when you work, rest, and play, may that grace ooze out of you so that others too would find a Jesus who loves us because of who we are, not because of what we do. And may his grace and peace be with you this week.